In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. We are in for a treat today, and we're actually changing things up because I am turning over the host spot to fellow podcaster Jeff DePauli of the Disney Coast to Coast podcast. You'll remember him from a few episodes earlier in 2021 in which he joined Tammy Tucky and myself as we discussed clever Disney music and Jeff is actually going to be sharing with you an episode of Disney Coast to Coast in which he interviewed Michael Arden, who portrayed Quasimodo in Disney's production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. They recorded this a while back, and it's featured on the Disney Coast to Coast podcast. But you're actually going to be hearing it here on the Notably Disney podcast feed today, so that's kind of cool. And then if you head over to Disney Coast to Coast uh, shortly, you'll be hearing an episode of Notably Disney, in which I interviewed the composing and songwriting team of Christopher Willis and Elise Willis, uh, who are responsible for the great song and Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway and the score and all of the Mickey shorts. Uh, so that was great. So uh, it just it's fun to do a little bit of a trade here. That's how we're starting off 2022. So I encourage you to listen along and enjoy this episode. Get ready for your weekly dose of pixie dust with Disney Coast to Coast. Hey folks, and welcome to Disney Coast to Coast, the ultimate unofficial Disney fan podcast. I'm Jeff DePauli, and today on the show, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was released on June 21st, 1996. 
Joining me to discuss the animated masterpiece and the Disney theatrical production it inspired is actor Michael Arden, who portrayed Quasimodo in the stage show. Michael is a celebrated actor and Tony Award-nominated director for his direction of Broadway's Spring Awakening and Once on this Island. I was lucky enough to see Michael perform the role of Quasimodo in Disney Theatrical's production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame at the La Jolla Playhouse. It was a true pleasure speaking with Michael about this epic story, animated film, and theatrical production. Grab the confetti and celebrate a Disney anniversary. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know you're super busy, and I'm excited to talk Hunchback of Notre Dame with you. I'm so excited to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, you played Quasimodo on stage in the first Disney theatrical production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame in the U.S., and in interviews and behind-the-scenes videos, I heard you speak so passionately about this story and the character of Quasimodo, so I thought that you would be the perfect fit to come on the show and discuss the topic. I know we're the same age, so we were young teenagers when this animated masterpiece was released. Do you have any first memories of this? Do you remember seeing this movie for the first time? I mean, I, I have a vague recollection of seeing this. However, I felt like the first Disney movie that sort of got me jazzed was sort of came after it. I, I sort of like, it wasn't on my radar as much. I feel like I, I might have even seen it in theater, but uh, but I'm not sure if I did. You know, I, I remember the animation. I remember like the gargoyles, definitely. So I'm having some some memories of that. However... I really it wasn't until I returned to work on the stage show that I really kind of watched it for the first time with a with a mind that could remember and really felt like I witnessed the story. And that was probably, I don't know, 2010, something like that. So you're a kind of a late Disney kid then you got into Disney a bit later in life. I mean, I was obsessed with Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. They were my first two CDs. I, well, I got four CDs when I got a CD player. I owned these four CDs. I had The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast film, you know, CDs. And I had, of course, Janet Jackson and the Bodyguard soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> Janet Jackson, the cover, you know, the one where the, the hands are over the chest, that <laughs> album, which is a sort of strange, that sort of like tells you where I was heading as a person, Those that quartet of, of media. That's so funny. Well, it is true, though, those Disney classics from, you know, when we were kids were Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. And of course, Hunchback came a bit after Lion King, but it, Lion King kind of was the quote unquote end of that renaissance. And so that's one of the reasons I love talking about Hunchback so much is because I feel like it doesn't get the recognition it deserves. It was such a great film. And I do vividly remember seeing it in a theater. And at, at the time, it didn't feel that weird to me because let's face it, it's very different. It's very out of the box for Disney. Incredibly dark. I mean, someone tries to like kill a baby in the first five minutes. I mean, it really a departure for what from what they were doing. Yeah, it was an extremely dark movie. And frankly, it was, you know, not a fairy tale. It was based on this adult novel, which... I, you know, still, I'm ashamed to say I still haven't read it. It's been sitting on my bookshelf for so long. I assume you have, yes? Yes, I have. I have. Uh, it's an incredible book. It's so beautiful. Um, but it is, it is a, you know, it takes a minute to get through it. 
Yeah, it takes, it takes a while. I'm sure yours is highlighted and underlined and everything. But the other funny thing about this movie was I kind of remember this feeling when it came out that it was a flop at the time of its release. But then looking back at the stats, it, it made $325 million against a $70 million budget. So it did well. But I don't know. Do you remember this feeling? It feels like a forgotten film for some reason to me. I mean, I feel like just the color palette of the film is kind of it's much more subdued and like you know if you if you think about those disney films in terms of color it's like you think like little mermaid is that sort of seafoam green i feel and all these sort of vibrant colors and then hunchback had this like the backside of the rose window kind of dark you know a feel to it and that it was based on you know it was it wasn't saying like beauty and the beast it was like the hunchback it's like who wants to see a show about hunchback so i don't know i i I don't know. It did sort of feel like it was in the recesses, I have to say. But then, you know, you listen to the score and it's one of the most magnificent Mencken achievements. I mean, it's just his work and his and Stephen Schwartz's lyrics are so perfectly intertwined in this piece of writing. And it's and it's so adult. These themes are quite, I think, adult. And um, and they wrote this score that is just perfect. And it, I, I mean, it sort of is certainly a bit more sophisticated, I'd say. And in story, I mean, you're dealing with like sexual desires uh, in a way in, in a Disney film that haven't been dealt with, as well as the idea of, you know, human, like human ignorance and malevolence in a way. You know, it's 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 not like lions treat each other bad or like the, the enemy was the church. I mean, in a way, is the church in the film in such a way. And that for Disney, I think, is probably, you know, that's not something you you sort of like walk in, you walk into like out of your Sunday school class. Like when you go see your Sunday movie, it wasn't like probably the, the, the first choice from, from, you know, judging the book by its cover. It is one of those Disney movies that on a spreadsheet, everything should be like the no checkbox, everything about it, except for maybe the music. But I mean, I would even include the lyrics in that. It just seems like if, if that sheet came across somebody's desk They'll say, no, we're not making this movie. This is not our company. Yeah. So it's remarkable that it got made. Yeah. And, you know, just the fact that, like, if you read the book, you know, or if you knew the book, like, everybody died. I mean, like, everybody's dead at the end of it. Pretty much, you know. You start, and you know that, like, it's going to be a tough a tough life for, for Quasi, too. And so, I mean, just to say, like, hearing the source material, like, I, I what a risk that was taken here with this. And I, I think that really speaks to, like, they found their footing and wanted to try something more adult. I mean, in the way that the progression into Lion King is like, we're dealing with the themes of Hamlet here. We're dealing with the death of a father. We're like, we can deal with death in a Disney animated movie. Musical. Oh, Disney loves to kill parents. Absolutely. Yeah, the favorite thing. But like, you know, n- none so bold probably as in Lion King. And so then it's like, well, the, the natural progression, if, if we're kind of growing with our audience, would be this. But I, I think uh, people wanted to go to an animated movie to not necessarily to, to cry and sort of question the, the cruelty of humanity. Yeah, it's interesting because I've spoken to a, a couple of people who, have, who worked on the film and they were all so excited. I think for that very reason, they're like, I can't believe we're getting away with this. I can't believe we got the green light to do this. And it was one of those projects that a lot of people wanted to get on for that very reason. Uh, so I think it's very exciting. But you mentioned how dark the book is and everything. And although the animated film is dark, they're definitely, you know, it's Disney-fied a bit. 
But do you feel like, you know, even though it's Disneyfied a bit, do you feel like it really gets the tone and the message? Is there anything that they change that you're like, oh, I really wish X, Y, or Z would have stayed? What the, what they did with the gargoyles is really interesting because I think, like, if you're going to animate, like, what a great idea. I mean, Stroke mm-hmm. of Genius, it, like, lets the kids into the psychosis of this tortured creature uh, you know, and so I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's, of course, like, also incredibly cheesy. However, like, if you're, we need some sort of talking object or animal or something. And therefore, like, it makes sense that, you know, I, and I think it's probably a much smarter and more visually interesting idea than, like, making the bells talk. So in the novel, like, Quasi is very much like the bells are his friends. But the gargoyles really open up the story in a really lovely way. You know, I think, like, they... They change the ending, like like big time, you know, like uh, Esmeralda dies, you know, like it, and he, you know, in the book, there's the ending is so incredible. He holds her, he's cradling her dead body, and it's very upsetting. And and then there's an epilogue to the book where they talk. It sort of jumps forward in time, you know, to a hundred years or so. And and in the catacombs, they talk about an excavation that uncovers the sort of skeletal remains of a kind of like deformed skeleton embracing uh, the body of the bones of a woman. And they were intertwined and they couldn't be separated. And this idea that like once he picked her off off that pyre, he crawled down into the catacombs and just died holding her, which is so unbelievably beautiful and upsetting. And, you know, so obviously like Disney can't really like do that. I mean, maybe they could have. Maybe they could have. Maybe if it had gone all the way, it might have been like, wow, well, this is this a Disney film that is less less uh, sidesteppy and more just sort of like complete departure. You know what I mean? Um, so that's I love that about the book because I just think that image is so haunting. But I can see how that might make children cry. <laughs> yeah, you kind of just blew my mind. I did not know that that's how the book ended. That's incredible. And I was actually going to say, well, they kind of course corrected with the stage musical you were part of because, you know, at the end of that, Esmeralda does die and they, you know, changed some stuff and made it closer to the book, I would say. But wow, I did not know it ended that dark. That's quite, quite incredible. You were talking a little earlier about the beauty of just the animation of this film. And, you know, there are some shots in this. I, I'm curious if, if you get the same feelings. I get such Pinocchio reminiscing shots of like, you know, just the camera moving through the town at the beginning. And I, I think it's stunningly beautiful so in the church. Cinematic. And so, you know, a, a way for people who will like never have the chance to know the, the wonder and glory of that building, you know, for whatever reason, like now we're able to like fly through it on the wings of this, like of a dove. I mean, it, I mean, it's really visually spectacular. One thing that's really interesting is, and this is going to sound blasphemous, but when I saw Notre Dame uh, in real life, I was actually a little disappointed by the exterior just because like in my mind it was the the Disney version is what I knew and it like I was like this looks small it was my first thought which seems crazy I know but I actually found the passage in the book do you mind if I take us back to that because it's so amazing please so it's there's this sort of like afterward and it said um we have just said that Quasimodo disappeared from Notre Dame on the day of the gypsies and the archdeacon's death. He was not seen again. In fact, no one knew what had become of him. And it goes on later than to talk about this architectural dig that happened several years afterwards. 
And it said, he says here, there's an object which held this one in a close embrace. It was a skeleton of a man. It was noticed that his spinal column was crooked, his head seated on his shoulder blades, and that one leg was shorter than the other. Moreover, that there was no fracture on the vertebrae at the nape of the neck, and it was evident that he had not been hanged. Hence, the man to whom it had belonged had come thither and had died there. When they tried to detach the skeleton which he held in his embrace, he fell to dust. Come on, he fell to wow. dust. What an, what an ending. I mean, it, it reminds me of Once in This Island a little bit in sort of the, the adaptation from the, the, the book in that. I mean, in Once in This Island, in the musical, she turns to a tree at the end, Timun, after her death, you know, and in the book, she's in the trash heap and, you know, a tear is, and, and it begins to rain. And the, the line is like, the tears were undistinguishable from the raindrops that fell on her, like, dead body. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of these things that, like, in order to, like, find an audience, we have to kind of change a little <laughs> bit now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's haunting. That's really beautiful. You've convinced me I need, I, this summer, I just need to read the book. It's, it's intimidatingly large somewhat. And, uh, I'm sure it's heavy, which is why it's, it's not, just, it's, I don't know. It's not as bad as Lim is, that's for sure. But I mean, okay, fair about, enough. Hugo like builds these worlds in his writing that are so complex. You're learning about like the origins of the footstool that is in the room that, you know, <laughs> there's a little, it's, it's verbose, but what he's dealing with in terms of exploring in both Les Mis and in Hunchback, I think is so incredible and so important to like humanity and, and how we treat each other and, and how we choose to forgive and, and these enormous sort of elements sort of rooted in faith that he explores through like the, the wildest of subjects. Yeah, I, you know, there's so many great moments and visuals from the animated film, but I'm curious if you remember this specific one during the the opening song, the opening montage, and we get that, stop, cried the archdeacon, and it like flashes, but it kind of strobes between Clopin telling the story and the archdeacon, and it's one of the coolest visual shots from any Disney animated film I think I've ever seen. I love it. It's so ingrained in my mind. Do you have any moments like that? Uh, from this film or do you do you even remember that moment i do remember that moment it's amazing and it's so sort of like it takes what's great about musical structure and what's great about film structure and like is it was able to like then do it in a way that only animation can i mean a real like synthesis of like this is the best thing you can do in animation it's like this type of storytelling but i mean i i guess i remember i love when god help the outcasts when Mm. The image of her sort of stepping into that light and, and that rose window is just haunting. I mean, that and like him sliding down the banisters uh, is singing out there. I mean, how how thrilling. How thrilling. I mean, the music, you you touched on this, but like, I it's impossible to pick a favorite Alan Menken score, it feels like. But I always come back to this one and Newsies. Those are like the two that I'm like, I don't know. They're just so brilliant, both of them. But I, the sophistication of this one mm-hmm. just seems immense. And from moment number one, it's just, and throughout. Yeah, I mean, he's, it, the score is so, like you said, I feel sophisticated. It's a proper, like, you know, thematic operatic score. I mean, it's really rooted in, it feels like a piece of classical music throughout. I mean, there's, you know, it's, there are fun songs, but it's just sweeping and it feels like of, of a piece and i think steven's lyrics are 
as an actor, at least, I mean, performing it, it's like, I didn't have to act. All I had to do was like, sing the note, sing the words on the pitches. And that, that alchemy of music and lyrics, like, did the work for me. I mean, it, it, every night, I, even listening to some of that music backstage, like the song Someday, which is a anthem. I mean, it is, it is, I believe if every, if the world could hear that song all together at once, like, we'd have a lot less trouble. But, you know, hearing that score, it just, it, it makes your knees buckle. I mean, it's really, it's incredible. It's a perfect mix. I, I just, what Steven was getting at, and he is such a, a person who in the world, I think, tries to like make goodness in his work. And I, I think like what he was able to explore in those lyrics is really special. Yeah, I often wonder, and you know, I'm not looking for you to speak for him or to give an answer to this even, but I always wonder somebody with talent like his, where he is a composer lyricist and he has caught lightning in a bottle multiple times as a composer lyricist. I wonder if it's frustrating somewhat for him to be doing just lyrics on a on a project. Like, I, don't think I, I, don't... So. I mean, I, I I know and have worked with Stephen a lot, and uh, I'm actually working with him currently on something, and I mean, he's just the most giving person I've ever known. I mean, he is, he works with the ASCAP songwriter workshop and musical theater workshop. He teaches, he offers support. He, I think he believes that like ego has no place in art. I, mm. I, I, so I feel like, and when I've seen him work with Alan, there's no ego whatsoever. He's there to serve the piece that he's working on. And, and contribute in whatever way he can. And I, I don't think he feels frustrated. I think he feels like excited that he gets a chance to exercise like a little bit, a collaborative skill set. He's a great collaborator. That's great. And it, it, obviously he enjoys it or else I don't think he needs to do it. But um, yeah, and they're still, yeah. I mean, they're working together. Like, I think they'll work together forever. You know what I mean? I think yeah. Stephen will continue to collaborate because that is the type of artist he is. I think he doesn't think that like, oh, it's only worthy if I do all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, working in a kitchen without uh, other chefs, or I, I don't know, like I think, yeah. um, which of course he can do brilliantly. You know, like look at look at what he does when he's in a room alone, but what he's able to do together. I mean, and that's gone back his whole career, collaborating with Leonard Bernstein. You know, and and starting out so young, he's been doing it for so long that I think he's just like, oh, this is just like breathing to me. Yeah, and I can breathe with other people in the room. Very cool. Now, you mentioned how operatic the score is. I do want to mention that the they actually recorded with the National Opera Company and a 100-year-old pipe organ in London for the animated film. And I just think that that's, uh, that's like that Disney touch of really the best, doing the best. You know, they could have done it with a created group of singers in L.A. or something. But they're like, no, we're going to go to London. We're going to find a 100-year-old organ. And we're going to find an amazing operatic company. And you can hear it in this film. Yeah. When you said 100-year-old organ, I just pictured my liver. <laughs> in a few years. No, it's, it's, I mean, that's the thing that Disney does is they, they do take such care. And I think especially in their animated work when they're able to, you know, by nature of the beast, no pun intended, it's, it takes a minute and therefore you want to get it right. You know, I think they, they put their, their money where their, their mouth is. Yeah. Now from, in the animated film, they take the character from the book of, you know, Archdeacon Frollo and make him judge Claude Frollo. And then for the stage production, they go back to making him the Archdeacon. Do, was there any conversation about why that decision was made in the first place and why you guys switched it back. I mean, to switch it back, I think no, makes sense just to be, not, you know, 
there really wasn't much discussion as to like why at all. I think I think it was pretty clear that like you know the the, the writers uh, and with book writer Peter Parnell who did the musical, the stage musical, uh, they wanted to really get into get get closer to the book. You know, we in the in the stage musical, she uh, Esmeralda does die at the end, and we do learn that their bodies were entwined and and that they fell to dust. But I think um, I think it. it it was sort of like wanted to say, oh no, this is very much a story not just about, uh, you know, the falsity and 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 misery that can occur when when power is abused. And this, it, I mean, it is about the church in this case. And I think that it, like it would be silly to like put it in a church on stage. I mean, I, th- I think if an audience who comes to the theater, re, you know, is going to say, well, why are you why are you placating? Well, you know, why why are you not trusting your audience that they can actually handle the fact that like, Oh, there are, you know, priests who are not good. I, yeah, I think, um, sort of respected the audience a bit in a bit more of an adult way. Yeah. Now when you were doing the stage production, that was the first U S production, but it had been done in Germany. So were you guys kind of workshopping it or were you basically taking the German production and making it American? No, it was a totally new kind of new thing that the German production had a book by James Lapine and then was translated into German and James directed that. And my dear friend, Drew Sarek played Quasimodo in that. He's an American, but he sang it in German and he's got the most amazing voice ever. I could never sing like that guy. He's so amazing. But this was really new. Peter Parnell and Stephen and Alan started working with Disney Theatrical on this sort of new version. So it wasn't really based on that, um, as far as I know. You had mentioned Out There, which is an incredible song. And oh my gosh, your rendition of it is mind-blowing. By the way, I did get to see it in La Jolla, front row, and it was truly and I don't say this lightly, one of the greatest theatrical experiences of my life. Like, I was just blown away. And honestly, I'd been waiting for it since I saw the animated movie. Like, I just loved it so much from day one, and this music, and this story, and these characters. And that production was so good. But one thing, you know, without there, when you, I think when Disney fans hear that song, like you said, we do picture these visuals of Quasimodo, like, jumping through the church and sliding down these rails and such, which of course you can't really do on stage. So was there any fear in your body of like, oh gosh, I hope I can do that justice since I can't do that? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, you know, but I think we found a theatrical vocabulary that could give it hopefully the same thrill. And, you know, you've also got a real life person singing in front of you. So hopefully that kind of helps a little bit, you know, for sure. Um, but yeah, of course, it's like, you know, I'm never gonna be able to like, do that, what what is on screen. But luckily, it's a f-ing great song. <laughs> if I can say that, you know what I mean? It doesn't it actually still works without it. Like it, it just just watching someone experience those thoughts and sing them with an orchestra and you know i think hopefully holds but yeah a little a little scary and and you know like you said it was it was a little scary too i was climbing and jumping off things yeah i would you know it was involved uh, not sliding down huge banisters but um tried to give it give it a taste of what had in the film yeah i love it so much and you know do you know if a guy like you of course we were talking about the gargoyles earlier and they have a song in the movie a guy like you and was that ever being considered for the stage one? Or? I no. don't think so. It never was. I, I, I did the first 
I think one of the first readings we did like, you know, in the, in the basement of the new Amsterdam. And I don't ever remember that song being part of it. Okay. That makes, yeah, that doesn't, I love what you guys did with the gargoyles, how you, how they handled that because there's nobody in a costume hopping around a stage, you know, being a gargoyle, but there's voices for sure. And I think that that's really cool and how they handled that. I thought it was brilliant. Um, I want to get back to Frollo for a second because I mean, Frollo may be the darkest villain ever from Disney because like he's human. There's very few of them that are like human. And I don't know if there are any that go as extreme as Frollo. I mean, there are moments in the film where we hear him giving instructions on how to whip another human, you know? Oh no, you need to do it this way so that it's more intense. And then like sniffing Esmeralda's hair in moments in the animated film. And of course, Hellfire, which to this day, I still don't know how it made it into the animated film, but thank goodness it did because it's so good. But oh my, the darkness is intense. Yeah, it's palpable, and 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 you have the, you hit the nail on the head with the fact that like he is human. He is not like he had. He is not even a human who's like getting magical powers. He is the human wielding the power of a human, uh, the power of a human with power, and that is and that can be the scariest of all evils. I mean, it, it's true. I mean, look at look at the look at history. Yeah. Now, one thing with the film that I find really interesting, because I don't really think of this movie and think, oh, star power. But then you look at it and it's like, no, you get Demi Moore. You've got Kevin Klein, You've got Jason Alexander. I don't think of that when I think of the movie. Tom Hulse, too. I mean, Tom Hulse yeah. is like Amadeus. Come on. Yeah. I mean, what a what a star and sort of. um but I think they really served their characters in a way that it wasn't like, oh, you know, in a way in other films up until then with like Gilbert Gottfried as these recognized voices um, in Aladdin, you've got, you know, Robin Williams improvising. You have these sort of like personalities that kind of shine through the character. And I think this really let the story be the, you know, be at front and center. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not it doesn't feel like stunt casting. Um, so much uh, the way that some other films do as you mentioned now one of the things I loved about stage musical from like the second I held that playbill and I saw the title the hunchback of Notre Dame a new musical based on the Victor Hugo novel and songs from the Disney film and I thought that that was genius because it kind of lets you know immediately like listen this ain't gonna be like Disney happy-go-lucky this is based on the novel hunchback on ice yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes which you know what i wouldn't mind seeing hunchback oh, on no. this, but, <laughs> but you know I, with that with that sort of struck with structure <laughs> on on two blades all. that is true uh how did you get involved with the musical was it just a typical audition sort of situation i mean i have to say like i really uh lucked into this job i had auditioned for the stage musical the little mermaid for broadway and i had got a few callbacks for it and and so Disney sort of knew me and, and I think Alan liked me. Um, and, and then I did a couple of productions of Pippin that Steven Schwartz was involved with. And so I think like the amalgam of them knowing my work and having had, having seen stuff I had done prior to that, I, they just asked me to come do a reading. I, I never auditioned for it. I just got asked to come to the first reading. And then I luckily kept getting asked back. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, it's gosh. kind of it, it's got you know it's like 
there's no great audition story. I think I, I had been like, I had, I had auditioned in other ways and sort of like other work I had done. And I had been in, like I said, Pippin, and I guess it just, they thought, Hey, this, this kid is, is right for it. And I feel like that's the best way. Like there's, cause you're not walking into a room feeling pressured to get this character, right? You know what I mean? It's just, you've proven yourself over and over again. So I think that's awesome. I'm, I'm curious when you got the part for Quasimodo, did you revisit the animated film or were you like, no, this is more based on the book. Let me focus more on that. I don't really want to be influenced. I definitely watch it. I, and then I watch other, other versions of it as well. Cause yeah, I think uh, more information is more information. Now, did you discover anything during like that rehearsal process that you'd never really thought about this story before? Because for me, seeing it, I remember like feeling somewhat sympathetic toward Frollo. I don't know what that says about me, but I feel like the stage production does that a little bit. Was there anything that you kind of realized during the process? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was and I think this really spoke to me because I had concurrently was working on directing what would become my first Broadway show as a director, the revival of Spring Awakening with Deaf West Theater. So I, was, I had worked and was working with a lot of deaf people at the, to- at the time, very sort of intimately. And in the book, it, uh, Quasimodo is deaf. It's just, mm-hmm. he, he, was, he, he became deaf, if, if not from birth, then from the, the sound of the bells and his, his proximity to them. And that really excited me as uh, and so we started to explore what that really meant how he would communicate when any sort of like vocal uh, vocal like affect or you know sort of muscle affect that that came out in the voice due to deafness and posture when that would go away you know when he's talking to a human it's it's present, but when he was talking to the gargoyles, he was free of the constraints of flesh and bone. Uh, so that was something that sort of came to us in rehearsal. And because I had worked quite a bit um, in deaf theater, I thought, well, here's an opportunity to look at sign language and and explore his deafness in a in a sensitive and hopefully helpful way for the story. So that was something that really like I, I didn't realize when like watching the movie, like, oh, Quasimodo is deaf and since our production, there have been quite a few productions with deaf Quasimodos, which I think is amazing. And honestly, like how exciting that we got there. So I think I hopefully, you know, was able to contribute a little bit in the shaping of of the story, you know, to push it toward what it should have always been, which is probably a deaf role, you know. You know, I kind of forgot until you mentioned it, but I saw a production with a deaf actor and it was interesting because he would speak the lines and then when it came time to sing, there was another actor uh, singing the part while he acted it out. And it's, you know, it's kind of like his inner monologue. So it totally worked and um, it was very interesting. And I just love that detail that honestly I'd never thought about before, but this guy like living next to these giant bells he would be deaf like this is you know uh that would just be a reality so i find it fascinating and very interesting as well yeah it's uh (laughs) it was an interesting day when i was like you wait he is deaf we have to acknowledge this or at least have a conversation about it who initially brought that up was that something that you mentioned i did oh wow yeah and and they were like let's go with this yeah, they're like, well, what does that mean? You know, you got to sing the songs. So, like, what yeah. does that mean? So, we we started parsing it through really delicately and really sort of methodically. And like, 
When is he speaking to a human? Does he need to speak or does he communicate in sign language? How little does he speak? He doesn't say much to humans. I, I mean, mm-hmm. in the in the stage play, it's like most of most of his his uh, dialogue is, is when he's by himself, quote unquote. Yeah. Now we've been talking about some of the great music we know and love, but people who don't know the musical and only know the animated film, I just need to say you need to get the studio cast recording because there is so much new music in this show that is just, I mean, as good as anything in the animated film, if not better. And what was that process like? Were you, were most of those from the German production or were you guys developing any of those? Um, All of, you were doing like your the choral pro- music? Yeah, like just even, you know, Made of Stone, I believe is yeah, from that the had, production. that had been in the German production. So there was, there was some music that had existed sort of post-film that was in Germany that then was was put back into English. And then there was also new music just for our, our version. So it sort of like has been this interesting progression of the score from the film to what is now the licensed stage show. I love that so much. I, am I getting the right title on top of the world? Is that yeah, one? Top of the, on top of the world. It's a beautiful. Oh my gosh. I love that song so much. There's, there's so much, good music the million dollar question i don't know if you have the answer but i gotta ask why didn't this go to broadway i mean this was it really just a financial thing was the chorus too big because this just felt to me like truly one of the greatest musicals of all time and i was like guaranteed tony awards is what it felt like to me yet it never went to broadway do you have any idea why you know i think disney is has to be incredibly uh specific about what they present in the marketplace. God, I sound like a lawyer. Um, but, but in terms of, you know, it's a very adult story, and Disney provides a family opportunity on Broadway, and I think this would have been really tricky to say, like, oh, it's Disney, but you might not want to bring your kids under 13. You know, I, I think that's... Um, then it Then it begs the question of, like, well, what what is is it not? I saw the cartoon. Well, she dies in the end. I mean, it's. I think it. I think it was difficult for them to sort of figure out how to brand the thing uh, and how and how to like find an audience that was signing up for what they would inevitably get once they walked in the theater. Plus, you know, there's like the marketplace can only be so saturated with Disney stories, and and, and they were working on Frozen at the time, and that was where their sites were and frozen was going to be the next show they opened on broadway uh so it and they felt that was going to be a surefire hit so i think it was like you can't have too many too many disney shows on broadway um you know i i was certainly bummed we didn't come in but you know looking back it might have literally killed my knees so (laughs) (laughs) so i i try to look for the silver lining and that i'm like you know not like on crutches today yeah well listen first of all i think that the title change that we spoke about earlier or not change but description i think that would have helped explain it to people and also i just hope someday someday that they take the risk that they did when they made the animated film because it deserves a broadway product it just does like i agree i agree and and you know what what's interesting is like yeah, it 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 sucks. It it didn't come to Broadway, but like maybe it will one day, and maybe a deaf actor will have a chance to win a Tony in a leading role in a musical. 
You know what yeah. I mean? And, and I have to think that like, maybe there's a greater, maybe there's a greater reason that we don't know. Yeah. I, I always heard that part of the issue was the chorus was so big for this film and it just wouldn't make sense financially on a Broadway stage because of equity and stuff. I, I have no idea whether or not that's true, but I mean, I, that was... I think if they had really wanted to figure that out, they, they would have figured that, that, that out in terms of like yeah. not having a chorus that big or, yeah. you know, like letting the chorus be students or figuring out some way of making that happen. Um, because it's certainly things like that have occurred before on Broadway where they've had, where equity has made special permissions, but I don't know. I am not, I wish I knew the answers. I just know that, um, I got, I had the opportunity to do it in two cities and it was a really magical experience getting to play that role. It was really <laughs> a time in my life when I needed to, to explore those themes. I had uh, just lost my, my grandparents who raised me sort of my parents. And it felt like what better, what better, you know, therapy than to get to, get to do that every night and find the, the beauty and hope in, in loss and forgiveness. As I mentioned, the studio cast album uh, is incredible. I'm really grateful that they made that. Uh, when did, cause it, you know, it can live on in that way. I feel like there are two ways that musicals exist forever. One is they either have a Broadway history and the other is, and, or they have a, a cast album you know an original cast album so at least hunchback has that that will always exist it's incredible how long uh you know when did you guys find out that you were going to be doing that it was definitely a bit after we closed the second production the so okay. i think like we we didn't think it was going to happen and then all of a sudden it was which was i think we'd always hoped for and i was really excited because you know i now I'm on that album. I mean, what it's so cool that that now is in the world and people can hear the whole score. And I think it's just so well produced, that album. But I think, yeah, it was like later that we, I think we finished in this early spring at Paper Mill and maybe found out like that summer. Um, and I actually, funnily enough, uh, Spring Awakening opened on Broadway, which I, dir I directed on like a Thursday night or a Sunday night. And the next morning is when we recorded that album. So like, you know, brought to you by a hangover that, that <laughs> album. Um, I was definitely feeling a little rough from like, it was a, that was a big two days for me opening a Broadway show and doing my first cast album. That's the dream though, isn't it? Exhaustion yeah. is cool, but that's like the dream. Oh, it was, I, I, I felt so baller. Come on. I was like in a studio <laughs> with Alan Menken, like recording a Disney album. Oh, cool. Yeah, and for anybody listening, there is a fun like uh, making of the Hunchback of Notre Dame studio cast recording video that you can watch on YouTube, and I highly suggest it. And I don't know, that score, just hearing an orchestra play that thing is amazing, and you got to hear it so many times live, and I'm sure it, it, you became a bit jaded by it at some point, but like... Never. I have to say, I, never. Never, never. Wow. Uh, before I came on for Made of Stone, I would lay down behind my entrance, and I would just lay on my back and kind of like stretch mainly but kind of mentally prepare for made of stone and i got to hear the song someday every night and i it put me in an emotional place every single night that song did i mean it, it never it like even thinking about it i'm getting teary-eyed right now because it is I, and I said to um alan and steven when we on the last take after we as we recorded our last take on the album i said this has been the the honor and privilege of my career thus far as an artist to get to, to get to bring this score to life. I mean, it's just, it's just that good. So I never got jaded. I would, Oh God. I mean, I, I listen to it right now if I could, I guess That's I can. Awesome. 
I guess I can. But it's <laughs> you little, can. There's a, I don't want to listen to myself. Like, I want to, like, hear the org. I want to, like, you know, listen to CRNA and Andrew Simonski sing that song. Well, listen, I, I listened to you sing it quite a bit. So it, was that the favorite song to perform, or did you have a favorite song in the show to perform? I mean, I, I guess I, they were all really fun. I loved Out There. Heaven, yeah. uh, Heaven's Light was is such a beautiful song, and Made of Stone was, like, so fun and yet so terrifying because it's just like a really emotional moment and has this crazy high note at the end of it where like i don't feel necessarily like oh i got this all the time you know i really was like what's gonna happen tonight i'm you know i I psych myself out so that was you know incredibly nerve-wracking but yeah those those are my probably three favorite uh songs to sing and i love singing top of the world with sierra i mean that what a beautiful song that is a great song. Do you have any quick Patrick Page stories? Just because his Frollo is just iconic. And he was actually the first person I ever interviewed on this podcast way back in 2014 after a performance one day. And uh, his his voice is just haunting. And it's just perfect for that role. So just any memories of oh, that? Oh, goodness. Well, I love Patrick. I, I felt so in love with him in that, working with him in that show that I begged him to do Spring Awakening with me. I mean, that's how that he, he ended up starring in that show. But I think I one great memory I have is just just being on stage with him. I mean, it just felt so alive and always different and always like he is never one to phone it in, to do it like he did yesterday, to sort of turn on autopilot. I, it was always so alive and I felt the relationship with him was so genuine that I didn't, it just felt like it wasn't Patrick. It wasn't Frollo. It was just my father there in that moment. I mean, it really felt real and alive and, and just such a sweetheart. And we had a good time backstage. He, he brought his dog a lot to the, uh, the show. And so we would hang out with his, it was funny to see him be on stage and be this like terrifying guy sing hellfire and then, like, come backstage and be like, oh, hi, baby. Hi, my girl. Hi, my girl. And it was just, it was so funny to see, see him in that, in, that, uh, in that robe, just, like, completely fawn over this pet. I guess that's a funny story I remember. That's funny. Now, are, I don't, I'm not sure about this. Are you a Disney Parks fan at all? Do you enjoy visiting oh, yeah. the parks? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Now, they've had some stage shows in some of the Disney parks, and today you can still find a music box in the Fantasy Fair section of Disneyland. But I think it's crazy that, as far as I know, there has really been no grand representation of the Hunchback of Notre Dame in the France Pavilion at Epcot, which I think is ludicrous. This feels like a no-brainer to me. Uh, Michael, you need to be hired to develop something for this space. So start I mean, thinking it would be really cool. I think we need a sort of, like you know, every hour the bells are rung and like quasi zip lines down. Like that's all it needs. We just need like a moment, you know, and like, how about at noon every day this happens? Let's go. I'm ready. I love that idea. And I think that that should happen. Yeah. I I mean, it just seems like a no brainer. Like I said, I mean, it's the Hunchback of Notre I think they play some, you know, instrumental music in the background or something from the film, but that's just not enough for me. I think it needs a bit more. You need more than background music is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Before we move on here, I do want to mention something real quickly because I saw your name pop up recently on the Disney-owned network ABC as you directed an episode of The Connors. How did that happen? How did you get involved with that? uh, Well, I I love The Connors, first of all. I'm so proud to be a director of that show. 
I had worked with the showrunner uh, and creator of that show, Bruce Helford, for many years on a sitcom that I, I was in called Anger Management. And he has been a huge champion of mine as a director as well and very supportive throughout the years. And a few years ago, he was like, I want you to direct on Roseanne when it was Roseanne. And he was like, great, we're, we're going to be setting up an episode for you. I was so excited. Going to be my first episode of TV. And then everything happened with Roseanne. So I was like, oh, wah, wah. Uh, and then the Connors came around and he called back and he said, listen, I said, you were going to do Roseanne. How about, how about you do the Connors instead? And so I directed one episode, my first season and then two last season. And we've just been picked up for another. Uh, so I hope I am back with those incredible people. It's like the best cast writers, producers, crew uh, ever there. It's, it's the most fun. I love being there and I love being part of that that family and I just love what that show is about and what they're dealing with currently on the show I find so bold and yet seemingly not you know it sort of seems like oh it's it's Roseanne like we've always seen it but they're dealing with incredibly topical important issues and doing it with such humor and and grace and I think really a mirror to nature uh, for American audiences yeah and you shoot that over the Warner Brothers lot where I worked for a very long time and and used to visit that set so that's kind of cool as well i'm obsessed with laurie metcalf i think that she's oh. just one of the greatest actresses on earth and she, she does stuff that if anybody else did it i would judge but i'm like no she like is so over the top but never not believable um she's i mean it's like it's not over the top it's just like real it's i mean it's just like i often say to actors i work with them i'm like no like why are you underplaying this like you walk out on the street people are crazy and laurie really gets that and i just think like she's so she's always honest hundred she she is so honest as an actor and so smart and so so dedicated she's she's a she's incredible yeah i have never seen her on stage i know she's done a ton of stage work and you I really hope I really, really want to. And I, I, there was that, I don't know if it was a rumor or confirmed at one point, of course, Broadway, who knows what's happening these days, but uh, her and Nathan Lane doing Death of a Salesman, I was like, oh, sold. If that happens. Yeah, I'm sign me up. Here, take all my money. Yeah, I yeah, I would love to see. I, I just got to see her on stage. She's incredible. One other theater thing uh, I just got to mention. You saved my love of theater at one point. Oh my because God. Because I... This is a completely true story. I went to see a national tour of something and I had had a few experiences in a row where like, I just was not getting the appeal of these shows. And at the end they were getting like standing ovations. And I was like, am I not a theater fan anymore? Do I just not like, I was really questioning this in myself. And then a week later to the day, I saw your production of Charles Dickens, a Christmas Carol at the Geffen Playhouse starring Jefferson Mays. And once again, like Hunchback, and I don't say this lightly, one of the greatest theatrical experiences of my life. And I was like, oh, I do love theater. I just love good theater. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's very kind. That was unbelievable. And I know we're so off topic of Hunchback, but I just needed to say, like, that was unbelievable. I I love that you guys shot it, um, you know, for this past holiday season so people could watch it online. Uh, any future plans with this production? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping there's actually a... We have made a film of, of it uh, that is much more a film than the, than just a capture. And so hopefully, uh, unsure where exactly, but hopefully there will, it will be available to be seen this coming holiday season. 
And this is the same one that we saw last season, you're saying? No, it's a, it's a new one, but it is the same. It's Jefferson Mays and it's the same team, but we took elements of the stage show, elements of the capture, and then entirely new film elements and to make a sort of wild fantasia of Dickensian themes. Wow. Now, that has me very excited. I'm a huge Christmas Carol fan. And oh, that that I ended up going twice because I was like, I need to see this again. It was so brilliant. But uh, in any case, before we wrap things up, is there anything else you want to add about Hunchback, about your experience with it, about your love of it or anything you want to say? I guess I would just say it was one of the last times I performed. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've done some stuff since then, but I feel like I was so spoiled by that material. I mean, it, it's felt like everything else since then, you know, is like just not nearly as interesting a role to play. And um, and it it just made me really appreciate good writing, good songwriting, good material, and, and good, you know, great producing. And, and um, yeah, so I haven't been too, too, like, thrilled about anything else that's, like, come... <laughs> come my way since then and not, not that it's not good but it's just like i think that um it was such a challenge and such a joy to get to tell that story i think uh that and I, I felt a real obligation and responsibility to the material and and that is that is like something that you can't can't buy you just got you know it comes along really rarely so i hope that i have another experience as good as that uh getting to play a character but if that is it it was a good one yeah, and it's you know, listen, it's on official record on that album, and I think that's great. Anywho, before we get going here, I think it's time for some trivia. Do you know the answer? Get your brain gears churning and play along. It's trivia time. All right, and before I let you go, I have a quick trivia question for you. I'm curious if you know, on April 15th, 2019, of course, Notre Dame had a massive fire, and one of the structures that burned down was Violette Leduc's cast iron spire. Do you know where in a Disney park have you been able to see a replica of this spire for many, many years? Oh my gosh. Um, of course, you remember the fire, I, I assume. Yes, I mean, that was a really, really horrible day yeah i was at, strangely enough i was in the france pavilion at epcot when i heard the news on that day and i was like oh yeah you can see this spire this this is one of the spires that burned down it was you know a super iconic structure on the building and it's been in a disney park for decades is it on one of the castles it is do you know which castle it's on the disney world castle it is not. It's oh, on Sleep- man. <laughs> Although that wouldn't, honestly, that wouldn't probably be more fitting. It's on Sleeping Beauty Castle in Disneyland. So if you're oh looking at the God. front, I know, it's crazy. If you're looking at the front of the castle, it'll be on the right side. And it's a miniature version of that spire because Walt Disney liked the look of it. And if when you know it, it doesn't like stick out like a sore thumb. But when you know, you'll notice it looks considerably different from the rest of the castle. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of it's bizarre that it's there but yeah it's there wow well michael thank you so much for coming on the show today this has been a lot of fun talking about one of my favorite truly favorite disney animated films and musicals and uh thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you so much it's been a pleasure I hope you all enjoyed today's conversation. On the last couple of episodes, we discussed new details about the upcoming Disney After Hours Boo Bash, as well as Disney attractions that continue the story instead of simply retelling the movie. 
Be sure to tune in next week for the latest Disney news. The easiest way to make sure you don't miss any of the magic is by subscribing to Disney Coast to Coast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Wherever you search, don't forget, it's Disney with a Z, Coast to Coast. Before we go, I want to give a shout-out to Jeff Riccio, who recently left a five-star rating for Disney Coast to Coast on Apple Podcasts. Here's what Jeff had to say. I started listening to DCTC in 2017, and I wish I had started sooner. Jeff's content, talking points, guests, and style all lend themselves to an unbelievable podcast experience. My favorite aspect of the show is Jeff calls it like he sees it, which can be very rare among similar podcasts. He doesn't see things with rose-colored glasses. He sees things for how they are and gives his opinions. The show covers content from the parks to shows, live performance, characters, and so much more. His guests are great as well, from Disney legends, Imagineers, or other podcast hosts and fans. I cannot recommend DCTC enough. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Riccio, for that extremely generous review of the show. If you'd like a shout-out yourself, it's so simple. Simply leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find any links and info mentioned in this episode, along with ways to connect with today's guest, by checking out the show notes link in this episode's description. This episode has been executive produced by Robert Scontrino. Gain rewards like Robert by visiting patreon.com slash Disney, with a Z, CTC. And don't forget to leave a voicemail at 818-860-2569 to share your thoughts on today's conversation and the chance to be heard on a future episode. You can find that number in this episode's description, along with a link for some free gifts from me to you. Other than that, folks, have a magical day. Bye! Thanks for listening to Disney Coast to Coast. Have a magical day. <laughs> Disney Coast to Coast is produced and hosted by Jeff DePauly. Learn more about the podcast and become a supporter at DisneyCoastToCoast.com. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation between Jeff and Michael. And I would encourage you to check out the Disney Coast to Coast podcast. And that's actually Disney spelled out with a Z as in Zerg in place of the S. So DisneyCoastToCoast.com is how you're going to be able to check out more of that content. And we'll be back to our regularly scheduled, uh, notably Disney-centric programming uh, on the next episode in which I will be talking with author Spencer Wright. So I hope you all have a wonderful next few weeks, and take care. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.